started a series in the book of James a few weeks ago uh, that we're titling The Gospel in Action. Uh, probably one of the most practical books in all the Word of God is the book of James. And especially as you want to live out your faith and be Jesus Christ to your world, uh, no better place to look uh, as far as how to do that than in the book of James. Now, you may have noticed that the, the, the word of the day for the society is inclusiveness. Uh, everybody wants to be included. They want to include everybody in this great big tent. Everybody just, you know, whatever they're thinking, whatever they're feeling, whatever their uh, lifestyle is like, uh, just include them all in one big place and let's all just get along and be happy together. It all sounds real good. The problem with that is God's not in favor of that. <laughs> God is a very exclusive God. He, he kind of excludes certain things and pulls certain things in, and he makes that decision. So God does not buy into this whole approach of exclusiveness, inclusivity, rather. God is very dogmatic. Have you noticed that? His, his word is very dogmatic. What he says, he means, and he just holds to it and contradicts everything around him, perhaps, but holds to that. Uh, the reason I'm saying that, I want you to look at James chapter 1 and look, if you would, at verse uh, 17. A very dogmatic statement. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights. Every good gift, every perfect gift is from God. That means God either gave it to you directly or God permitted you to have it. You don't possess one good thing in your life that God didn't give to you. Uh, you didn't gain it by your own efforts. You didn't get it because you deserved it. You have it because God gave it to you. One more attack on mankind's pride. One more attack on mankind's self-sufficiency. And believe it, what that means to you and I is this. If God brought something into your life, it's good. We may see it as frustrating. We may see it as possibly even harmful. If God is at the source of it, or if God has permitted it, that is a good thing that God's allowed into your life. And a believer can check their spiritual maturity by seeing how they react to that truth. Now, what also we find here is that in God, there is no variableness. That means God never changes. That means God will always be good to you, always good. He will always bring into your life that which is best. And the fact that God never changes also means that what he has said to us also never changes. I praise God he has given us a book that although the scholars and the skeptics have attempted to modify it and change it, it is the same for us today as it was the day he inspired it and then preserved it for us. The book is the same. I've been saved for 59 years. The promises that I read in that book apply to me when I was eight years old when I got saved, and they apply to me today. <laughs> Nothing's changed. Uh, we can't find that in anybody or anything else. You may not be able to point to one dependable thing in your life. But in God, there is no variableness or shadow of turning. So I want to start by looking at that statement tonight. I want to think about the fact that God brings every good thing into our lives, that there are good gifts God brings in. Uh, that should cause our minds to begin to think about what good things has God brought into our lives? What are the good gifts God has provided to us? I will not even begin to try and list all those things. There are too many to list, obviously, that he's provided to us, things that we have while we live on this earth, uh, things that he gives to us, those of us who know Jesus Christ as Savior, those things he's provided to us corporately, those things he has provided to us individually. It would, take too, it would just simply take too long to catalog all those things. So what James does, he cuts through all that and mentions one good gift, the one good gift at the top of the list. Look at verse 18. He says, uh, well, I'm going to start with verse 17 to get the context. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights, with whom is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Among all the good gifts God has given to us, James puts our salvation at the top of the list. And that must be at the top of the list. It's got to be the first thing on our list. 
Uh, now, there are some things that he says about this gift of, this, of salvation that are important for us to look at. First of all, notice, if you would, he says, of his own will begat he us. This plan of salvation was all the will of God. Uh, no one on earth had anything to do with it. No one had anything to do with how God set it up, how he established it, how he carried it out. Now, I find great comfort in that because I will tell you, I can make a great plan. I can make a plan that to me seems like it's foolproof. And I also know even as I do that, there's a better plan out there. And I often also find that although I think my plan is foolproof, I begin to enact that plan and all sorts of issues arise as I try to do that. So the best plan you and I can come up with is full of problems. But no plan that God has ever come up with has that same issue. God never has that liability. Every plan of God is the best plan. And every plan of God is mistake-proof. Now, I'm not going to go through it all this evening, but if we give full consideration to the plan of salvation God devised, what you find is that is the most fantastic plan you'll ever find. It is an amazing plan down to every detail. Every issue that had to be addressed for you and I to be saved was addressed in that plan. Uh, People through the centuries have tried to find all sorts of problems with that plan or tried to add things to it, tried to improve it in some way. All those efforts are unnecessary and are really a waste of energy. God's plan to save us is perfect. It is a perfect plan. And that it's because only a perfect plan can come from the mind of a perfect God. So if God ever, rather, if Satan ever tries to create doubt for you, hopefully he doesn't, but I'm sure he will. But if you ever buy into that doubt and begin to wonder if you did the right thing or if your salvation is enough or if it won't really work like God said it would, lay all those concerns aside. Don't give them another thought. Now, because the plan is perfect, it works for everybody. It always will work. God has saved you the day he saved you. You'll be saved right on into glory because it's a perfect plan. Don't give those concerns a thought. Now, notice also the effects of this plan. It says there, of his own will, begat he us. Notice this plan came by way of a birth. Uh, that is why this plan is so foolproof. Because what I have found, especially in the other work that I do, uh, the plans that people should, should devise to try and help people change almost always involve reformation. They always take what a person is and then try to make adjustments to them in some way to make them better. But in the case of our sin, that simply wouldn't work. No matter how many adjustments were made, the sin is going to remain. It's not going to go away. It may be less prominent. I may have a little bit more control over it, but it's still going to exist and still have influence over me. So here's what God did. He did something completely different. He didn't reform me. He rebirthed me. He rebirthed me. Uh, Notice the word begat there. That word indicates something that was born that wasn't there before. Uh, The result of my sin, the result of Adam's sin, was that we were born with a dead spirit. And no person can have a relationship with God who is a spiritual being unless they have a live spirit. So what God did in the process of our salvation, he placed his live Holy Spirit inside us, and his Holy Spirit gave birth to our spirits. When Jesus Christ talks about being born again over there in John chapter 3, that's the birth he's referring to. Salvation did not reform me. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, 17, you know the verse well. It says when God saved me, he made me a new creature. (laughs) A new creature. Not a reformation, a new creature. And that comes by way of a new birth. Now notice also, if you went in verse 18, the instrument God used to make that happen. Of his own will begat he us with the word of truth. The word of truth. Now, I'm sure there are those who have attended our church in the past or have heard about this church in some way or another, and they believe we simply put too much emphasis on the word of God. I've heard that. In fact, somebody attended this church, it's been a while back, and said they used too much Bible there. (laughs) 
Uh, they want us to talk about more relevant topics. They want us to focus less on Bible doctrine. I think the exact opposite. I don't think we focus on the Bible enough. <laughs> I think we need to, need to do as much of that as we possibly can. I don't think we could ever emphasize the Word of God too much. Because when it comes right down to it, everything I have is because of that book. Everything I have is because of the book that lays before me here tonight. And James makes the point here that it's the word of God that was the primary instrument that God used to bring about my salvation, to bring about my new birth. We're going to see that again down in verse 21 when we get there. So the most important thing on earth is the word of God. Nothing supersedes that book. Nothing, no matter what a person might uh, put against it or compare it to, uh, that book is stands all by itself. Here's what Jesus Christ said, John 6, 63. He says, the words that I speak unto you, they are spirit and they are life. The words that I speak unto you, that is spirit and life. What more do you need? <laughs> what you need is spirit and you need life. And that book, those God's words provide both of those to you. That is why uh, we leave the word of God alone here. We don't try to make attempts to improve it or make it more acceptable. We just let it stand as it is because that book contains life and that book brings life. How could anybody improve on anything like that? You simply can't do it. It's impossible. Uh, we don't worship the word of God in that sense. We, heart it, we hold it in high, as high regard as God does. And God said in the book of Psalms, I exalt my word above my own name. So we'll hold it up there where he holds it. <laughs> we'll exalt it to that level because that's what God does. Now look at the verse again. It says, of his own will begat he us with the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. First fruits of his creatures. Now, let me make a doctrinal point first, if I could. And we're talking doctrine as well as practical application with this book. That word first fruits there actually is a, uh, a reference to Old Testament saints. Uh, the Old Testament saints were the first fruits in terms of the resurrection of God's people. Uh, those Old Testament saints that died before Jesus Christ came, uh, they were in the heart of the earth in what God called Abraham's bosom. And they stayed there uh, before Jesus Christ died and was resurrected. Once Jesus Christ went to heaven after the resurrection, what he did was he went to that place and carried them out of that place, uh, also called paradise, and took those people to heaven with him. And so those Old Testament saints were the first to be resurrected, and therefore they're the first fruits. And that is there again. I'm going to re keep repeating this, and we're going to say it many, many times before we're done with this study. This book doctrinally is written to the Jews. During the time of the tribulation, that's what the doctrine of this book applies to. And therefore, you'll see things like that all through it because this book is doctrinally written to the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, the spiritual application, uh, when we talk about the first fruits, can refer to us. Because you see, folks, you are the first ones in the history of the world to experience the new birth. The first ones. Nobody experienced the new birth prior to you, and it won't happen that after we're gone the way it happens right here. We are the only ones who have been made spiritually alive by the power of the Spirit of God coming in and residing inside us. Others have and will gain salvation from God, but only those of us living in this church age are made spiritually alive by the power of the Spirit of God. And therefore, in that case, we are the first fruits of that whole process of being born again in that way. We are the ones who for all of eternity are going to be the clearest example of the demonstration of the grace of God. I want you to hold your hand there in James. Go back a few pages, if you would, to the book of Ephesians. And we've looked at this verse before, but I think every so often it's good for us to look at it again. Go to the book of Ephesians. Go to uh, chapter 2. And we're going to look at verse 4. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 4. Now, this is speaking to you, folks, because the book of Ephesians is written to New Testament believers. 
And he says, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ, by grace ye are saved, and hath raised us up together, and made us sit together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Watch it now, that in the ages to come, and that's every age after this one, in the ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us through Christ Jesus. Through all the ages, you're going to be posted there as a demonstration of the grace of God to everybody who walks past you. Everybody who knows you in heaven in the new Jerusalem is going to see you as one of those ones who really receive the full grace of God. That's going to be who you are. You're going to be a trophy of God's grace as you reside in the new Jerusalem. Uh, God has blessed us with great gifts, as James says here. No greater gift that he's provided to us than the complete salvation provided by the plan and the word and the spirit of God. It's a gift that we're going to celebrate from now and for all of eternity. And with all that in mind, James now moves to the application. What he says is, you've got that gift tonight. You have been bestowed that gift by faith in Jesus Christ, and therefore we need to make some application of that. That salvation process has made you a child of God. It's a miraculous, one-of-a-kind one process. Recipients by the, by, of salvation only by God's grace. Now, if you get the full impact of that, and if I get the full impact of that, that should change us. That should change how you respond to life. That should change how you respond to sin. It should change you in every way. It's unthinkable to me, and I mean that with all my heart. It's unthinkable to me to believe that a person could go through that process of being born again and then immediately or sometime later go back to living the life that they used to live. I don't get it. I cannot comprehend that. I don't see how that can happen. I know it happens. I just don't get it. Uh, something's wrong when that occurs. Now, it's going to take a number of verses to get the full picture of the changes that should occur. And so we're only going to look at what James has to say. And we're going to look at verse 19 here and see the kind of changes that James said we should make, how our lives should be different because we have received this great gift of God's salvation. Look at verse 19. First notice it says, wherefore. Whenever the word wherefore is there, it always points to what it was said prior to. So this verse is a reference to the salvation he's talking about in verse 18. So we can say, because of that salvation, uh, verse 19 says, Wherefore, my beloved brethren, let every man be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to wrath. What changes should occur because salvation has come? Well, James focuses on some very interesting things. Uh, and that really shouldn't surprise us, the practical application of this book, uh, that James gets very practical as he talks about the changes that should occur. Uh, you've been saved tonight. And because you're saved, you are a demonstration of the first fruits of God's salvation. And because of that, there are three characteristics that should exist in your life, according to what James tells us here. And the first one is, we should be swift to hear. Very practical, swift to hear. Now, uh, that means we should be ready to hear. We should be uh, willing to hear. We should be uh, ready to listen to what somebody has to say. Now, the context is specifically God's word. We'll get back to that in a minute. But that is not the exclusive uh, interpretation here. I want to look at the general truth first. The fact is, and maybe you have found this out, I have found this out, most people are not very good listeners. Most folks aren't very good listeners. Most people have something they want to say and want to get what you have to say over with so they can say what they want to say. <laughs> uh, that's been my experience at least. 
One of the reasons I, uh, that the field I'm in in my other life is so valuable to many people is because for an hour they can talk about what's important to them and nobody interrupts them. Nobody tries to say what they need to say. They just listen to what's being said to them. Very few people get that opportunity. Very few people in this life are willing to do that. But it is a basic human need to be heard. And we can do great service to others by being willing to listen, even with what they're saying to you, you have, has no real interest to you, or even if you think that you have something to say that is much more valuable than what they have to say. <laughs> and in terms of our salvation, I'll tell you something. We will lead very few people to Christ if we're not willing to hear what they have to say. And I mean that. I realize lost people say some very silly things about spiritual matters. I get that. Uh, you read your, get online or watch some of the stuff that goes on and some of the stuff they say about spiritual matters. It's downright silly. It really is. But if I talk over that person or ignore that person or disregard what they say, chances are I'll miss an opportunity to give them the gospel. It may be tedious. It may be difficult. But what we need to do is just be quiet and let them talk for a minute. Now, in terms of living with your brothers and sisters in Christ, you will never be edifying to your brothers and sisters. You'll never be encouraging to them if you never give them a chance to speak. If you're always talking and they have to listen. If in our approach we make it clear that what we have to say is much more important than what they have to say, we're going to miss our opportunities to build up one another. In the, in the monumental words of Judge Judy, God gave us two ears and one mouth <laughs> because he wants us to listen more than he wants us to speak. If you just had that and nothing else, folks, you could walk out and be wiser than you were when you walked in, you know. Now, one thing that James, in this context he's speaking of, is specifically he's talking about the Word of God. Now, whenever you sit down to read God's Word, whether it be in the morning, afternoon, or evening, whenever you do that, it should not be our goal simply to get through the number of chapters or the number of pages we set for the goal for that day. So we can say, okay, fulfill that requirement, we can move on. Our goal when you open this book is to hear from God. He wants to talk to you out of that book. That book is God's breath. He wants to speak to you out of that book. That book is the main way God has to communicate with you. Everything God wants you to hear is in the book that he's given to you. But I'm not going to get any of it if I don't listen to what he has to say, if I just kind of ignore it or move on from it or rush through it. And so I come to this book swift to hear, ready to hear, even if I'm being having communicated to me things that are offensive to my flesh. And by the way, Every time I open that book, it's offensive to my flesh. <laughs> my flesh hates it every time I open it because sooner or later I read something that offends my flesh. Uh, but I'm going to tell you something. I often get offended when I go to my doctor. Now, I love Dr. Anderson. He's a great guy, a uh, smart guy, knows his stuff. I love this guy. But he tells me things that are wrong with me. I, I pay this guy to tell me what's wrong with me. <laughs> How dumb is that? <laughs> And he finds things that I don't even know about and tells me I need to take care of these things. I don't want to hear all that. So I can choose not to listen to him. And if I do that, first of all, I've wasted my time going to him. What's the point? And secondly, what he's identified for me is only going to get worse. So when I go to the doctor, I need to be swift to hear. I need to be ready to listen to what he has to say. This book is the same way, folks. If you get into that book and read it and don't hear what it has to say, you are wasting your time. You might as well not do it. It's a waste of time to do it. If I don't hear what God is telling me, uh, I am wasting my time. And also, if I don't see what that book is revealing to me and do something about it, it's only going to get worse. It's not going to get better. If I choose not to hear it, 
and I avoid it, it's only going to get worse in the process. So, because I'm saved by the Word of God, it only makes sense that after my salvation, I listen to what the Word of God has to say, that I'm swift to hear when it comes to that book, about what He has to say to me, about how I should live after I trusted Jesus Christ. That's number one. Number two, it only gets worse, slow to speak. Slow to speak. In other words, think very carefully before you say anything. We are told that one of the fruits of the Spirit is temperance. That's an old English word that means self-control. Our lives as believers are to be characterized by having control over ourselves, or really having the Spirit of God control us. And one of the places where this is most difficult is in our speech. I don't know about you, but I often speak without thinking. Oftentimes I speak with the flesh in control. And therefore I say some really stupid things. I don't need examples. You don't need to do that. I I understand. I I got it. Uh, we, we will say some ridiculous things if, we, if our flesh is in control when we speak. I will say things that will put off those who don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. I'll say things that in no way edify or encourage those who are in the body of Christ. And if I could paraphrase James's words here, allow me to do that if you would. What he is saying is, believer, you don't have to say everything that's on your mind. You can keep some of that to yourself. In fact, your testimony is to the lost and your benefit to the saved is going to be harmed if you speak everything that's on your mind. So James says, think before you say what you're going to say. Uh, I would say this, allow the Spirit of God to speak first. <laughs> let him get in there first and let him kind of filter whatever it is you want to say by uh, getting in there before you say anything. The old thing, you know, be sure your brain is engaged before putting your mouth in gear. That's not Bible, but that's real close <laughs> to what James is saying here. And make sure before you speak, your brain is operating. Good words for a believer to live by. Okay, then look at it. He says, uh, slow to speak, uh, swift to hear rather, slow to speak, slow to wrath, slow to wrath. I've talked to folks who are characterized themselves as having a short fuse. I just talked to somebody this week who told me they have a short fuse. And when they say that, what they're doing, they're excusing their tendency to blow up on people. <laughs> because they have this short fuse. Well, you know, how, how can you expect me to stop it? I've got this short fuse. Folks, having a short fuse is not a character trait. Having a short fuse is an indication of somebody who is allowing the flesh to be in charge. Not allowing the glorious salvation that God has provided to them to be in charge of them, and the flesh is in charge instead. Again, a believer's life is to be characterized by self-control. I can't imagine a greater indication of the changing power of Jesus Christ in a life than to have a person who had a hair-trigger temper, trust the Lord as Savior, and from that, produce a person who is slow to wrath. I've seen that happen. I've seen some folks get saved, and they had this quick temper, and when they got saved, suddenly they were the calmest people on earth. Uh, that's what the peace of God does, by the way. <laughs> the peace of God just kind of settles those things if you allow it to do so. So that's like, that would be a, a great testimony. You see, folks, the greatest testimony the world is ever going to see from you is a changed life. When they see you operating differently than they do, different than the world around you. That will be the greatest attraction anybody will have to hear what you're all about, to see what, how that change occurred. So uh, uh, that changed life will be your way of, of showing people that Jesus Christ makes a difference. And a change like that would be an amazing testimony to God's power if somebody was allow, able to do that. By the way, uh, the body of Christ uh, doesn't need believers who can't keep their temper under control. Uh, Satan disrupts the body of Christ in all kinds of ways. He really doesn't need our help. <laughs> uh, we don't need to do it for him. 
Uh, and one of the ways the body of Christ is divided is when certain believers allow their wrath to go uncontrolled. Now, it may be what we call passive anger. It's not really this, this you know, this uh, confrontation. But that anger just exists there and just works on people and begins to divide people as a result. James is not going to let go of this idea, rather, by the way, of this uh, uncontrolled wrath. Look at verse uh, 20. He says that for the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Now, look at that verse. That's, a, that's an amazing verse. I don't, I, we, that's not one you necessarily would circle, but it might need to be circled. <laughs> the wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. Now, I'm not going to go too far into this, but I want to hit some highlights here of our salvation, what James is trying to say. When God made Adam, he made him for two reasons. God made Adam to glorify God, and God made Adam to fellowship with God. That's the two reasons mankind came into existence. Adam was made to fulfill God's plan on this earth. And to do what, he, what God wanted him to do, Adam had to be sinless. There's no way for a person to glorify God fully, and there's no way for a person to have fellowship with God if there's sin. So Adam had to be sinless to fulfill that plan. Well, as we well know, Adam sinned. And when Adam sinned, that plan of God was put on hold. And Adam's sin passed on to us, and God had to put in play at that point in time his plan to remedy that sin. And so what he did, he brought Jesus Christ into the world, and Jesus Christ died and paid the price for our sins. One of my favorite verses, 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 21, tells us that once you trust Jesus Christ as Savior, you get Jesus Christ's righteousness. You become the righteousness of Jesus Christ, and that righteousness is what gives you your standing before God. And that righteousness is also what distinguishes you from all those around you who don't know him. Those folks out there aren't righteous in that sense. Uh, They're not righteous. That's why they do the things that they do. That's why the world is going crazy. That's why our nation is going crazy, because the people in charge aren't righteous. (laughs) That is what distinguishes you from all of them. So the righteousness of God that's applied to us allows us to fulfill God's plan for his creation, having fellowship with him and bringing glory to him. So what do you expect Satan to do? You expect Satan to find some way to interfere with that. What Satan wants to do is hide God's righteousness. He wants to take your life and somehow put a veil over that so people don't see the righteousness of God through you. And so he'll tempt you to sin in all kinds of ways. And what he will also do and what the world has become very good at is helping you minimize sin, making it smaller than what it is so that it exists in labels like short fuses. Uh, That's a, a way to minimize that sin. And so it doesn't look so bad. And it's a character trait rather than a willful choice to violate God's standard. That's why James says what he says. Look at the verse again. The wrath of man worketh not the righteousness of God. When I allow that wrath to be exhibited, people no longer see God's righteousness. And when I hide God's righteousness, what I hide to the world around me is the purpose for which God saved me. People need to see that righteousness to realize that's why God brought salvation into the world. What that means is this, and I realize this seems uh, incidental, but James is making the point here, a practical point. Every time I lose my temper in front of somebody else, I violate the plan of God. Because at that moment, they're not seeing the righteousness of God in me. They're seeing my temper and my anger. They're seeing my flesh. And that happens every time I sin, no matter what that sin is. Now, if we see it that way, folks, it puts that behavior in a whole new perspective. (laughs) 
Because, again, it's not just a character flaw or a character trait or I'm under a lot of stress or whatever it might be. When I lose my temper and people see that, I am violating God's plan by not showing God's righteousness. Here's the global thought. We simply cannot accept the world's view of sin. We're going to talk more about this in the next couple of weeks because James hits on this a lot before we're done with this chapter. We cannot allow the world to so define sin that we miss what God says about it. And what's happened in our world, what's happened in our churches, is sin has become minimized by labeling it in other ways. And so it's not quite so sinful anymore. And sin is brought into the church, and it becomes something other than sin. We can't allow that to happen, because sin is destructive. Sin will destroy you, it'll destroy your testimony, it'll destroy your church. Guaranteed, if it's allowed to have rain. So you see, what James is saying is, don't allow that to happen. Instead, uh, realize it's sin and stop that sin by placing yourself under the control of the Spirit of God. Uh, this is where the rubber meets the road, as they say. And this approach helps us gain perspective as what we need to do, how, how we need to seek to live as children of God, as saved people under Jesus Christ's uh, salvation. Wrath in my life is an indication that I'm not acquainted with God. When I show that wrath, what it shows is I'm not acquainted with God. I'm not acquainted with what he has called me to do. That's bottom line. That's what James is telling us. With that said, look at verse 21. Here's another wherefore. Wherefore. Now, because that wrath can work not the righteousness of God, because that being swift to hear and slow to speak and slow to wrath, if we're not doing those things, we'll create a wrong image of what Jesus Christ has done. Because of all that, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness, and receive with meekness the engrafted word, which is able to save your souls. James is piling on now. <laughs> what he's continuing to do is look at your behavior, our behavior, and our attitudes, and saying, here's what that'll look like in light of the fact that you have been gloriously saved. Here's the practicality of your salvation. And three qualities should characterize our lives because of the glorious salvation God has provided to us. And at the basis of these three things is that word that has become in many places a curse word among the people of God. The word is separation. <laughs> separation. That's the foundation of what James is saying here in verse 21. In spite of this new philosophy that has permeated our churches and our thinking, the thinking of many believers, we are not supposed to look or act or think like the world. I'm going to talk more about this in a few weeks. I'm, I'm preparing you for that. <laughs> We are not supposed to bring things into our lives or into our church that have their source in the world's philosophy or the world's way of doing things. There should be a stark difference between our world and the church and believers in the church. A stark difference, a noticeable difference, a noticeable divide. Uh, Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 6.12. He says, all things are lawful unto me. What he is saying is, I can do anything I want to do and stay saved. But what's missed oftentimes when people grab that verse is what he says next. All things are not expedient. All things are lawful. I can do them. But there are things that I do that may be lawful for me, but they don't fulfill the plan of God. They don't complete God's purpose for me, God's purpose through me. And so I can do them, but they're not expedient. They're not helpful. And when we separate from those things that we're allowed to do, uh, we're, we, but are not best for us, we need to separate from those things. Because Paul says, even though you can do them, they're not expedient. We separate from those things that we are allowed to do, but we choose not to do them because they're not best. What are those things? Well, in this particular case, uh, James names three of them. First of all, he says, wherefore, lay apart all filthiness. 
filthiness. That has to do with giving into lust. Has to do with taking that which God has made pure and defiling it. Uh, this month has been a stark example of that. <laughs> there has been huge examples of filthiness going on on the White House lawn. <laughs> filthiness. That's taking what God makes pure and defiling it. Whenever you see the world take something that God has made pure and change it into something defiled, that is filthiness. And any believer who has accepted the world's world's reworking of what God made pure has entered into filthiness themselves as a result. Here's what Jude says in verse 23 of the book of Jude. We are to hate even the garment spotted by the flesh. He says, if the flesh has touched it, it's filthy. And get away from it. Avoid it. And hate it. Hate it. So the first thing we avoid, the first thing we work on, is we lay apart filthiness. And then notice the next. We lay apart the superfluity of naughtiness. I love that phrase, by the way. I think that's a great one, probably the greatest Old English phrase in all the Word of God. <laughs> the superfluity of naughtiness. Well, the word uh, superfluity simply, if you break it down, super means above or beyond. Above or beyond. Uh, fluidity is fluid. So what it's talking about is an overflowing, just simply something that overflows. Naughtiness has the word not in it, which simply means nothing. So we separate ourselves from anything that overflows with no good outcome. We separate ourselves from anything that overflows with something that serves no good purpose. Anything uh, sinful comes to nothing. That's a good way to identify sin. If there's no good product from it, uh, that's probably sin in, in most cases. Uh, let me ask you, what has been the outcome of the sinful lifestyles that's been promoted by the world over the past 50 years? Give me one positive outcome from the lifestyle that the world has promoted. Well, I'll tell you what the outcome has been. It's been an increase in disease, an increase in lawlessness, an increase in the suicide rate, an increase in murders, an increase in alcohol and drug addiction, and an increase in perversion. And that's just the top of the list. I and mean, we can go much farther if we wanted to. The lifestyles that have been promoted by the world over the past 50 years are examples of the superfluity of naughtiness. And so what does a believer do? They separate themselves from all those lifestyles. If it has perversion, if it's got something that God has taken that is good and they've defiled it, get away from it. Separate yourself from it. And anything associated with it. And we make God's position known to the world instead. And I know they won't like you for that. And I know many believers won't do it. But folks, you need to take a stand. And say, you know what? This isn't right. <laughs> this isn't right. The world may say it's right. God's word says it isn't. Uh, the problem, the reason so much of this is going on now is because believers have become quiet about some of this stuff. Now, I'm not saying you need to be obnoxious. I don't mean you have to you know, be a goof about it. I'm simply saying, take a stand for what's right. Take a stand for what's right. Uh, don't buy into this whole uh, superfluity of naughtiness. Don't buy into this, into this overflowing of nothingness that the world is demonstrating. All right. Now, what we do is we show God's love to those who are involved in this lifestyle, and we hate everything that is connected to it. Show love to those who are involved and hate the lifestyle and hate everything that is associated with that lifestyle and make the position known. So we separate from those things. Notice the rest of the verse. We separate from filthiness. We separate from the superfluity of naughtiness. So that's what we go away from. And then we go towards something. Receive with meekness the engrafted word. So instead, we pull ourselves from those things and we attach ourselves instead to the engrafted word that saved you. 
Now, we're going to talk more about this next week. But here's a, here's a, a fantastic thought. That word engrafted is talking about grafting in. You know, when you have a, a branch of a tree and you want it to grow, uh, so you graft it into that, that other tree and the thing starts to grow because you grafted it in, it takes root and takes life. That's what happened when you got saved. When you got saved, that book was engrafted into you. You carry the word of God around with you everywhere you go now because God has put that book in you as part of the salvation process. So once you're saved, uh, whether you like it or not, you cannot get away from the word of God. <laughs> it's been made a part of you. So it is futile to try to get away from it, try to get away from that standard, because God has placed that standard inside you. That's why so many believers, when they try to sin, are so miserable. <laughs> because they try to sin on the outside, and they've got the Spirit of God and the Word of God on the inside, battling them every step of the way. And that's why a believer may live a sinful life. They're not going to live a happy, sinful life. <laughs> Uh, they may seem like they have happiness. Inside, there's that turmoil going on as the Word of God and the Spirit of God fight against what they're trying to do. So it's futile to get away from it. Instead, what James says is, I'll receive it with meekness. Here's what you need to do. You need to read the, here's what I need to do. <laughs> I need to read the Word of God, and then I need to set aside everything that I think. I need to set aside all my ideas. I need to set aside what anybody else has told me, and I simply need to hear what the Word of God has to say. Amen. That's receiving the Word of God with meekness. What's that say? What that says is, I don't know it all. I know nothing. The Word of God's got what I need to know. And so I'm going to set aside everything I think and everything I've been told. I'll set all that aside, and I'll just hear what the Word of God has to say. I realize that God's words and God's thoughts are much more important than my words and my thoughts. That's meekness. And his words and his thoughts are more valuable than anything that this world will ever promote. There's more value in one page of the word of God than an entire system out there. And so with meekness, with full acceptance, we hear God's word. And then you know what you do? You know what I do then or I should do? After I read the word of God, I change my ideas and I adjust my attitudes and I change my way of living so that it coincides with what God's word has to say. If that book contradicts me, I don't change the book. I change me. <laughs> if something's going on in that book and it says, Sabaka, here's what you need to do. I say, OK, I'll decide what I'm doing and I'll do that. Now, I'm going to tell you, I'm sure you know this, and as we wrap it up, I'll just uh, give you this final warning. If you do that, if you get into that book and do what that book tells you to do and set all your ideas aside and just do what the book says, you know what's going to happen? Your flesh is going to hate you. Your flesh is going to despise you. <laughs> your flesh is going to do everything possible to get you off track. Because that flesh does not want to follow that book. Not in the least. <laughs> And I know that because every time I read something and try to make a change, I get this resistance. Now, that's not God. That's my flesh saying, so, you know what? We want to do it the same way we always did it. Well, the book won't let me do that. So your flesh is going to hate that approach. And I guarantee you folks, listen to me, if you choose to get into this book and change your thoughts and your ideas and your manner of living to match up with the Word of God, your flesh is going to fight you every step of the way. And that's why many believers stop doing it. They just can't take the fight. <laughs> which is you've got the Spirit of God inside you, he'll fight through that for you. In the face of that resistance, what we do is we take God's Word as it stands. 
and you do exactly what God word, God's Word tells you to do. And if we will do that, what James is telling us here, back to the very beginning, what James is telling us here is, if we will do that, the glorious salvation that God has given to us is going to shine to, out to every person we come in contact with. It's going to be like this bright light of salvation showing out from us. It's not our light, it's His light. <laughs> It's going to shine out to everybody around us. And God's purpose for saving me is going to be fulfilled in my life as a result. So, folks, here's the charge. Get into the book. Take time in the book. Be swift to hear what the book has to say. And then change yourself to match up with what the Word of God says. And you'll walk out of your doors glowing with the glorious salvation of Jesus Christ. Let's stand.